Bocas del Toro, Panama. A secluded seaside hideaway. Scott Makeda has no idea that his tropical haven is about to become his personal hell. He literally said, I have the power of Satan. A serial killer pretending to be a therapist. Holbert rents a room and that's where he set up his business as a fake shrink. Accusations of a gringo mafia. Gun running, drugs. A slaughtered family. And then he goes back and he plants another bullet. A killer on tape. Hey man, I'm guilty. Everybody knows I'm a monster. The law of the jungle is simple. Survive. From Treefort Media and Village Roadshow Entertainment Group, this is Natural Selection, Scott versus Wild Bill. I'm your host, Candace DeLong. Follow us wherever you get your podcasts. Now, we're talking a lot about very specific risks. I want to expand a little bit. Your group, the Eurasia Group, releases an annual top risks report. One of my favorite uh, GQ's top trends of 2022 is another one there. Open-toed sandals, they're in, but I love your top risk report. Sexiest man of the year, People Magazine. Jordan, I know that you've been up for that. Thank you. I've I've been up, uh, yeah, a, uh, I got the attendance award for that. Um, All uh, we can do is show up. That's half of it. <laughs> I've been here 43 years on this planet. I am there. I send in my little card. If you buy a People Magazine, one of those subscription cards, if you write in in the box, I want to be considered for Sexiest Man Alive, they said they will consider it. So I've done that every year since since birth. So thank you for noticing, Ian. I yep. appreciate that. Yep. <laughs> I know you are a big NBA fan. And, uh, you know, it seems to me as though they're getting a lot, very, very physical now. That's starting to get close to the days when you, you know, your boys in at the Pistons, you know, it's starting to get pretty rough. You have any sense of this? Ja, ja Morant got knocked out. He's out for a whole game. So, you know, they were claiming the guy with the Warriors grabbed his leg and all that stuff. Um, but it seems to be getting pretty physical. What, what's your sense? Well, I mean, I think it's always been physical. Like you said, the uh, Pistons of yore, that they took pride in the, the physicality of, of basketball. Uh, I, I mean, I love it. I, to me, it's the most exciting sport. I think basketball is, has grace, has athletic ability. Uh, but also, I love the physicality. What's what's his name? Uh, 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 Joel Embiid. He broke his eye socket, took out two yeah. games, and then he's back, which blows my mind. And, yeah, and that executing at a high level. I think that's I, such, a, such an amazing thing to watch. I, it is amazing. Now, the last thing I want to bring up is, you know, so I've been told that this rapper by the name of Inspector Inspector Deck has put you on his album. Tell us about it. It's a it's a pretty cool accomplishment for somebody that that follows as closely as you do and listens as closely as you do. Tell us a little bit about that. How do you well, feel? I, well, I appreciate you bringing that up. I know we are both uh, Wu Tang fans. Uh, this is something we were talking about. Yes, I this weekend I was pointed in the direction of the album by the group Zarface. The uh, new album is Armageddon, has Inspector Deck as one of the MCs on it. As a huge Wu-Tang fan, uh, I love Inspector Deck. I love all the Wu members, and I get name-checked in one of the songs. And it's probably, it's it's definitely the highlight of my career. I don't see, I'm, I'm clearly a part of the culture enough that it puts me within the Wu-Tang canon. And therefore, uh, yeah, I mean, 
podcast with Governor Kasich, high on my list. Well, but expected I, it, deck I'm, reference. I'm yeah, okay. I'm, I'm wondering if maybe he he dropped your name because he knew about our podcast. That I could be. A, a, <laughs> I think a lot of the you know I know you got his text to me said he's a huge Kasich fan. Uh, I know Raekwon is a big Ian Bremmer fan, so he's going to be yeah. tuning in right now. Say what's up to the chef. I think we have most of the Wu Tang Clan uh, on board with sort of the you know bipartisan uh, social commentary podcast conversations that we have here, Governor. How about our guest? He's a pretty amazing guy coming from humble beginnings. Why don't you tell us a little bit about him? It's, it's yeah. exciting to have him. I think we, we, we have a, a wonderful, thoughtful guest who's going to kind of catch us up on the uh, ever-impending global apocalypse that uh, we find ourselves in. He's a political scientist, independent voice on critical issues around the globe. He's the president and founder of Eurasia Group, a political risk research and consulting firm, as well as founder of G Zero Media. He's a frequent guest on CNN, Fox, MSNBC, BBC, Bloomberg, as well as host of G-Zero World with Ian Bremmer, the weekly digital and broadcast show. And he also serves as foreign affairs columnist and editor-at-large for Time Magazine, the author of 11 books, including the New York Times bestseller, Us Versus Them, The Failure of Globalism, which examines the rise of populism across the world. And his latest book, The Power of Crisis, How Three Threats and Our Response Will Change the World, is available now. This is Ian Bremmer. Ian, thanks for coming on the show. Thanks, Jordan. That was a lot, Jordan. Thank that you. was. Halfway through, I was like, should I cut some of this out? I would. I'd just start making stuff up if I were I was going to say, what, 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 what are the, the big two? What do people need to know? If they need to get quick to the Ian Bremmer train, what do they need to know? Uh, Moose, my Norfolk Terrier, is awesome. And in terms of the book, one of the things I like most about the book, and you're going to be the first person I've mentioned this to, is the dedication. You know, usually the dedication is campy or stupid or personal. This time, the dedication is right on target for the book. And here it is. The dedication is to a glass half full. That first half was tasty. <laughs> and I, I, I think it, it, both, it, it both connects with my existential optimism but also with where we are in the world right now. I've heard you describe your point of view as existential optimism. What does that mean? Uh, I mean, it means that uh, both the way I was raised, uh, if, if my mom were still alive and saw me complaining with my state of life, given the way I, what I grew up with and what I grew up without, she'd slap me silly. Um, and secondly, just philosophically, if you take a step back and for even a moment, think about how extraordinary it is that we exist, that we have consciousness, uh, you just don't get to bitch that much. Right. So um, I, those those would be the two things that drive it for me. Take a, take a reminder that we are small specks in this ever expanding universe uh, as you start to tweet out your panic day in and day out. That's a, a little bit of advice for me and Bremer. Yeah, I think so. I don't panic much. Do you pan? I actually have a shirt that says don't panic. I was, you know, I was a fan of the Douglas Adams of when I was a dorky member of the undergraduate community at Tulane. And I, I it sticks with me. Well, I think 47 is still the best answer we've gotten for that whole meaning of the universe. Except it was 42. Did I blow it? Is it 42? You blew it. Yeah. Jordan. This, you know what? No, I, you know what? Jackie Robinson's 42. And as much as I love Douglas Adams, uh, you know, he can't, uh, he can't take that number away from me. You're Googling it right now, aren't you? I Shoot. am. In case I'm wrong. You got a real time fact check. I got to tell you, I came in, I was like 60% right. sure. It is I knew, 42. I, yeah, it was 42. Right. Damn it's it. It's 42. 
Yeah. Sorry. I mean, I, I was, I was going to literally fact check myself like five seconds later. So I was wrong, but it turns out I was right. Don't worry. I'm going to go back in the edit. I'm going to make myself look like a genius. I'm going to cut out all of that stuff that made you look like a smarty pants. Except uh, you're too cool to do any of that, which is one of the <laughs> things I like about you. Sir. Cool or lazy. That will be determined. Uh, it's the same thing. We're doing all the talking. I should bring Governor Kasich in. You guys know each other. Is that right? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> we do. You know, I spent a lot of time. I mean, I spent 18 years on the Armed Services Committee. And so, you know, that's all about defense. And I've written a bunch of stuff and participate in foreign policy discussions. And, um, you know, th- that whole world is filled with people who've spent a great amount of time studying things. And Ian is one of them. It's he spent his whole lifetime looking at uh, at the situation all over the globe. So, I would suppose, Ian, we we should start a little bit. We have to start, no question, about Ukraine. And um, you're not Nostradamus, but uh, where do you think this thing this thing is headed? Well, I think there are two things that we definitely know, um, and they're big things. Uh, the first is that this is the end of the peace dividend for Europe. Um, the Russians are being decoupled from the West economically, and that is permanent. So the the Europeans aren't going to be buying energy from Russia anymore. The oligarchs aren't going to be welcome. Uh, The trade, the tourism, the banking, all of that is being cut off. And once it's off, it stays off. That's the first time in our lives that we've seen that happen to a G20 economy. So that's a pretty big deal. It makes the European Union matter a lot more. It makes further exits of European countries incredibly unlikely. It makes them spend more and focus more on defense and national security, all that. The second thing we can say, and those are all good things, by the way, uh, but the second thing we can say, which is a really bad thing, is that there is no scenario that I can come up with where Russia and Putin does not end up materially worse off than if they had never invaded Ukraine on February 24th. And that's true diplomatically, it's true economically, it's true strategically, I mean, just on every front. And that makes this much more likely to go badly for a long period of time. There's no climb down for Putin. There's no way for him to save face. This is gonna be a very ugly long-term outcome that he is gonna find deeply unacceptable. Did you see, I, I, obviously he gave a, a big victory day speech. Uh, I, I say hilariously, it feels like people are looking for the silver linings within it, but they pointed to the fact that he didn't signal for an escalation of the war. Some people have described it as treading water. Did you see any optimism in that speech? Uh, I don't know if I'd call it optimism. I mean, I, a couple of things that I saw in the speech and I got up early um, because, you know, and, and there aren't many Putin speeches I would get up early for. This one was was significant. This was a biggie. If you're going to set your alarm, do it on this one. Yeah, I think that's right. And plus, you also had, you know, all of the military theatricality around it. So, you know, it felt like it felt like the right thing to do. You're a sucker for a parade. I am. I am. Um, you know, and and I also um, I, I look the fact that he didn't mention Ukraine at all in the speech is not a great thing. Uh, the fact that he didn't declare victory in even a small way, uh, because declaring victory at home in Russia is kind of a precondition 
to saying we did what we needed to do. We denazified Ukraine, whatever the hell that means. Uh, we saved the Russians in the Donbass who were going to have a genocide committed against them. That's all fake news. But if Putin were to do that in a speech, that creates the conditions where he can say we can now freeze the conflict. We can talk about a ceasefire. He didn't do any of that. Um, that so those are the those are the things that should discomfort you. Um, I think that on the more positive side, he did not uh, declare a general mobilization to raise another 150,000 troops in the next couple of months, which is an important for expanding the war uh, more broadly across Ukraine. He didn't do that because that will be very unpopular inside Russia. So he doesn't feel that level of desperation that would make him feel compelled to do that. And he also didn't rattle nuclear sabers the way he and his cabinet have over the past two months, he didn't do that in this speech. He didn't talk about World War III. He didn't, you know, sort of tell NATO that, you know, if you do X, uh, it's over for you. So, I mean, on balance, I wouldn't say it was a nothing burger. This, this conflict is still going quite badly. It's still trending towards escalation. But the speech could have been worse. I'll, I'll give you that, Jordan. <laughs> you know, Ian, I, my sense is is from what I've seen of the speech, and again, it just to not announce this mobilization, to not rattle the nuclear saber. I mean, to me, that's pretty significant. And maybe he's maybe he's treading water, trying to figure out where to go. Uh, you know, you wonder what he's doing to his guys who gave him an intelligent estimate that was so so widely off the mark. Uh, maybe that's what this is. To me, I look at it and I say, I think, uh, I think overall, I'm, I'm happy that he did what he did with this talk. Uh, I'm certainly, uh, I'm certainly happy that it wasn't worse. Uh, I'll, I'll accept that. Um, I think that, uh, I think that he did give himself by not being specific about his war aims, and he has not been specific about his war aims for some time now. Um, he's continuing to give himself maximum optionality on the basis of where this goes. So, right. I mean, you saying treading water and let's see. Yeah, I, I, I think he's not tipping his hand to the West, right. but he's also trying not to force outcomes at this stage. He doesn't um, want anything wider to happen, I think, is part of it. What did, what did you think? Uh, what do you think, Ian, about these intelligence uh, reports that are coming out that that we have targeted his generals or, you know, that those kinds of things. Uh, what, what was your sense of that when you read it? I'm glad the Pentagon denied it uh, because even if we're doing it, it's not something that I want our officials saying, disclosing to the media. It is clearly an escalation. Look, I, I think that. And, um, and what about, and what about uh, the, 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 uh, the secretary of defense saying that it's our job to basically degrade Russia. Do you think that was a smart thing for him to have said? seems like we're we're starting to kind of puff our chests a little bit more yeah. and more and more. And uh, I think, you know, there have been columnists that have said that perhaps we're drifting into a, a part of this that that we're, we, we've got to be careful where we're going on this whole thing. You know, Lloyd John, Austin's comments, you know, one of the things I've 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 long liked about you, John, is the fact that I don't feel ego when you are talking about what the right policy should be. And and I, I really you know, this is a place where we need the United States to be leading a multilateral coalition. We need consensus. Right. And Biden did that very well 
in the early days of this right. conflict in, in marked opposition to the Afghanistan withdrawal. It was almost like a different administration. And as the war has unfolded and as the Ukrainians have done better and as NATO is all on board and everyone's saying we've got to find more stuff to do to support them, we've descended a bit into chest thumping. Yeah. Uh, and, and it is only a bit. It's only a bit. I, I agree with that. But I, I do. I mean, in a sense, I wasn't worried when, when, when Biden was in Warsaw and he closed his speech with this whole, you know, my God, this man cannot stay in power. That didn't bother me because that was an expression of moral outrage that, frankly, everyone in NATO feels. And it's what you've come to expect from I, I Biden agree. over I decades. Agree. I agree. I agree with all that. Yep. But when the secretary of defense says, no, we, we want to degrade the Russian military so they can never do this again. Number one, that's not a credible goal. Number two, it's not a goal that is shared by many of our NATO allies. And number three, it is unnecessarily incendiary to a Russia that is already seriously on the back foot over the court because of the weapons systems to the Ukrainians, the intelligence sharing that's going on, the crippling economic sanctions that all of NATO is actually imposing on Russia. Why do you need to go there? Unnecessary. Unnecessary. So you and I are completely of a piece on this, John. Yeah, yeah. Usually are. When when we talk about, uh, you know, where that line is uh, with the U.S. involvement and whether we're engaging in acts of war, our perspective where the line is, how different is that than Russia's perspective of where the line is and the the U.S. actions? Are we are we in a dangerously gray area right now? Well, I mean, yes. But to be fair, that's Russia's responsibility. Largely, 90 percent, 95 percent. I mean, they're the ones that invaded. And that created a dangerous area, gray area, unless we were going to literally wash our hands of it and walk away. And completely walking away was was never really plausible. We we'd already under the Trump administration, we were providing javelin anti-tank weapons to Ukraine. You're literally I mean, we were warning the world that this is going to happen. We're warning Putin, don't do it. We had to do something. I think that um, this this became the first thing that happened that surprised people from the West is that not only did you see sanctions on uh, using SWIFT to uh, to go after Russian banks, which a lot of people thought that was that was going to be held in abeyance, but that was kind of a nuclear uh, economic sanction. But then beyond that, we froze Russia's externally held assets. Half of their central bank reserves, we froze. And no one thought that was possible, least of all the Russians who had the assets sitting there. They didn't actually think to to move them um, in advance, which was kind of stupid on their part. So I think that was. But Ian, isn't that isn't that really because Putin and his people were watching a lot of our behavior? Yep. A red line in Syria that, you know, we ignored, you know, running out of Afghanistan without a reasonable plan. We all wanted to exit. You wanted to exit. I wanted to exit. But, you know, running out of there without a plan. So Putin looked at all this, you know, the squabbling in the United States politically, the squabbling, you know, the rise of Le Pen in France. He looked at this and said, oh, these people are weak. Right. And then we showed he but he, he hit a nerve where we we this was like you got us right up against a wall, buddy, and we're not taking it. But that you're, you're absolutely right, John. But let's keep in mind that there were indications before the invasion started on February 24th that the West was viewing this 
differently. There was much more the intelligence sharing that was going on from the United States, the greater coordination, the urgency, the priority. I mean, if you're Putin, you would you'd want to at least hedge it a little. Right. I understand that's the driver. But if you're such a master strategist, as everyone in the West so fashionably had been calling Putin for a long time, you'd want to hedge it a little. This was huge arrogance on Putin's part that went well beyond the idea that the West wasn't going to make good on this latest potentially failed red line. Uh, but but I, I to go to Jordan's back to Jordan's question just for a second, um, you know, it, it's once you are saying we will destroy the Russian economy, once we're saying we will provide not just defensive, but major offensive weapon systems to the Ukrainians, once you are saying that you will provide real time intelligence as to the disposition of Russian forces on the ground fighting in Ukraine and launching from Russia. Um, you know, I understand that from the United States, we're saying we're not going to send troops directly into Ukraine. We're not doing a no fly zone to have American fighter pilots uh, launching against Russian jets. But I mean, all of these things I just mentioned from the Russian perspective are seen as acts of war. And, and the Russians will respond against NATO. They will. That doesn't mean World War III. It doesn't mean nukes. It doesn't mean they're going to send tanks into Poland. But the idea that Russia is just going to limit um, their frame of reference to the Ukraine as opposed to um, cyber attacks against the West, disinformation attacks against the West, espionage and other things. I mean, I think we have to be prepared for the fact that this war is going to expand. This is not just going to be a cold war with the West. It will have elements of a hot war with the West. And that's a serious problem. We'll be right back. Oh, my stars, Steve. My stars and stripes. We have some exciting news. Shall we tell them? We should reveal that Chinwag is hitting the road again and going on a West Coast tour. Yes, that's right. If you missed us in your fair city, truly, friends, don't fret, don't fear, don't have a panic attack. (laughs) Do not panic. We will be recording live Chinwags in May in Los Angeles, Portland, and Seattle. Yes, in L.A. we'll be at Dynasty Typewriter on May 14th. You can go to chinwagpod.fm slash Los Angeles for tickets. And on May 16th, we're going to be in Portland at Revolution Hall. For those tickets, go to chinwag.fm slash Portland. And we'll be at Town Hall, the great town hall in Seattle on May 17th. For tickets to that, go to chinwagpod.fm slash Seattle. You do not want to miss this. It's going to be awesome. It's going to be mighty, mighty So get your tickets at chinwagpod.fm, and we will see you there. Come on out, waggers. Come out, waggers. Come out. (laughs) Come out of hiding. (laughs) And now back to the show. We have so many areas of the world I want to talk. I want to talk about nuclear proliferation, Saudi and Israel, the Israelis, Mexico, all that. But one last thing for me on this. Finland and Sweden, it's just like shocking to me, you know, and we we thought maybe it would happen. It's actually happening. Germany beginning to increase their defense spending and and actually being pretty darn good partners with this and then getting China to back off with without, you know, not providing these supplies that the Russians are going to need and particularly in technology related to their weapons. This is pretty amazing, isn't it? Finland, Sweden, Germany in particular. 
So, I mean, the, the, my book is, the title is The Power of Crisis. And, and the, the thesis, the fundamental thesis that runs through it is the idea that, you know, in decades of incremental erosion of our institutions domestically and internationally, that you're not going to fix this stuff unless you're forced to. And, and the response to the Russian invasion of Ukraine is an example of that par excellence. Macron said that NATO was brain dead. It was adrift. And now it has a mission. It's expanding. It's getting the money. Uh, Finland and Sweden are going to join. The Germans are spending 2% of GDP. I mean, we've had how many presidents, Democrat and Republican, trying to convince the Germans to do that. But Putin is the one that made him do it. And that's the power of crisis. There are there's absolutely real opportunity for the West and for the world in taking advantage of this crisis. Yeah. I, I spent a little time in Hungary uh, a month back, and uh, the, refu- the, <laughs> the refugee crisis was front and center there. In Budapest, you walk through the train station, and there's thousands of people coming off the trains. There's such an outpouring from the community there um, to, to help the refugee, uh, the, the, the folks coming in from Ukraine, to help them get to where they need to go. And the government has had a more empathetic approach to the refugees coming in from from Ukraine for this crisis, which was in direct contrast to what happened Syria. Uh, with, with Syria. Yeah. I, I wonder uh, how much, what your view on how race and ethnicity is playing a factor in the response to the US and the European countries to, to this current refugee crisis. Oh, when you're talking about the refugee crisis, absolutely. I mean, Jordan, one of the things, one of the stats that always um, bemuses and saddens me is that when you ask Europeans, what percentage of their population do you think is Muslim? They always guess some large multiple higher than what it actually is, uh, because you know it, it's it's a demonization of the other that the politicians have used very effectively. Trump did the same thing. The first thing Trump tried to do and failed uh, when he became president was the Muslim ban, right? I mean, it's just it's just easy. Um, and, you know, Angela Merkel uh, almost destroyed her her tenure on the basis of allowing in a million Syrians a year. She did it anyway, but it was massively unpopular. I remember when she was going around on her reelection campaign and I mean, getting drowned out by just ugly, ugly rhetoric uh, from people that were so unhappy. They let him in. And now you've got, I mean, five million Ukrainian refugees over the course of three months, five million. And they are, I mean, being welcomed and they're not in camps, they're being welcomed into people's homes. Poland by itself, almost 2 million refugees, right? And Poland was considered one of the most anti-European, most problematic of countries. And now they're taking a lead. And the fact that these are considered fellow Europeans, fellow travelers, people they get, they understand, they connect with, could be them there, but for the grace of God, that matters. And, and the, the problem I have, and this is pretty fundamental for me, is that I consider myself a human being before I consider myself a member of a country. I, I think that that should be a fairly obvious thing for all of us. But unfortunately, politically, it's increasingly hard to say that. And it's certainly hard to act that way. Um, and the Americans, our ability to lead the world um, is really undermined by our lack of credibility and consistency on that issue. I mean, you know, when, when Biden says this is about a war 
between democracies and autocracies. The fact is that we only have the advanced industrial democracies, the rich ones on our side. We don't have Brazil or Mexico or India or any of those countries. And, and part of the reason is because the Americans are seen as responding very differently to Ukraine and the white Europeans than we would to the plights of the Palestinians or the Syrians or the Yemenis or any of those. And that's a real problem for us, frankly. Uh, Jordan, when we take a look at rattling the nuclear saber and and where that leads, so that makes me think about proliferation. So we're trying to do a deal here with Iran, apparently. You wonder if uh, what people are beginning to think about is, well, if I have these nukes, you know, we think about North Korea, we think about Russia. Thank God that uh, uh, that the Ukrainians gave up theirs. Um, can this lead us to a place where countries begin to think, hey, you know what, I, I need to have those things. And as more and more countries get them, right, we know that things become more hair-trigger-like. What, what do you think about that? Yeah, look, I, I think, and, and to tie it directly with what we were just saying, in 1994, the Ukrainians gave up their nuclear weapons. And in return, they signed something called the Budapest Memorandum. And the other signatories were Russia, the UK, and the United States. And we guaranteed them that we would defend Ukraine's territorial integrity in return from them giving up nukes, which we had no intention of figuring out how to implement. And then in 2014, um, when Ukraine was invaded by Russia, we didn't do very much. We certainly didn't defend their territorial integrity. And what does that mean for that piece of paper that we signed, that we, the United States, the, the leader of the world, the most powerful country, the supreme democracy, the exceptionalist nation, the indispensable power, and we signed this piece of paper, and it doesn't mean a word that's printed on it. And I think that, of course, I mean, if, if you see what's happened historically to Ukraine and to Iraq and to Libya and what hasn't happened to North Korea, you certainly understand why a number of other countries would be motivated to ensure that they have effective deterrence for themselves. It's, real, it's, it's, a, it's, 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 it's so darn troubling. Um, I, I think the world needs to think about this. I mean, we need to have... You know, the UN, you wonder, I mean, we want to get rid of the UN, but boy, it's been so ineffective when you put some of these countries in charge of the Human Rights uh, Committee of, of, the, of, the, of the world through the UN. But the issue of proliferation should be front and center for, for the world, because it's no one's interest for these countries to start to get it. Yeah, I, mean, I, I am someone who is a big believer of the United Nations writ large, as an right. organization. I think it does a lot of good. Uh, I think the World uh, Health Organization should be made stronger, should not be disbanded. The World Food Program is the only thing out there that's doing yeoman's work in trying to reduce uh, global hunger and poverty for uh, a group that's going to expand dramatically because of the Russia-Ukraine invasion. But the Security Council is broken. And the Secretary General said that himself. Yeah, I saw just that. A few that weeks was pretty. Ago. That was pretty shocking. Pretty I, shocking. I, it was great that he he went ahead and said it because it's true. Yeah, I mean, how can Russia? How can Russia be a legitimate member with a permanent veto of the Security Council when it's run by a war criminal that's leading a war 
uh, attacking civilians, directly targeting them. Uh, terror, you know, this is state sponsored terror. It's it's torture. It's rape. Um, and no and none of these Russian soldiers will be will be arrested for crimes because the, the Kremlin is telling them to do it. And they're a permanent member of the Security Council. And yet the two countries that are powerful, that are most committed to rule of law and multilateralism and the U.N. Charter can't be made permanent members because they lost World War Two, Germany and Japan. It's a travesty. Really interesting. I'm curious your take on the power of ego. We look at what's happening with Russia. I think your analysis of uh, there's no way for Putin to save face. Is there going to be, do we need to start thinking of, does there need to be a global narrative that gives an out for Putin to save face in a situation like this? How much, how important is the overall narrative for somebody like Putin who is, who is building a legacy and building a narrative himself uh, to see any kind of end in this conflict? Yeah, I mean, unfor- unfortunately, when I said I don't see any way, I mean, like I, I'm gonna, I'm gonna say it again. Yeah, I don't think it's possible. I want it to happen, but I mean, sometimes things that you want just don't happen, right? I mean, as my mom used to say, it's nice to want, um, but you know that that didn't get me most of what I was looking for growing up in the projects. Um, I I think that. Uh, that you know Putin's decision to go all in on Ukraine has led to uh, I mean look the biggest problem it's not Finland and Sweden the biggest problem it's not NATO expansion it's not the German spend the biggest problem is that Ukraine which Putin considers to be an illegitimate country is now run by an international war hero who has immense support, unprecedented support from every advanced industrial economy. I mean, hell, Bono went to see him this week, and not that I care, but I mean, you know, I mean, every, everything is happening for this guy. That is unacceptable for Putin. Uh, you can't fix that. You can't fix that for him. That was, he did that to himself. And, and I mean, short of Putin being ousted, which does not look remotely likely in the near future, um, he's going to be further humiliated than he felt before he invaded. So I mean, look, I'm glad that Antonio uh, Guterres uh, went to, uh, to Moscow and led the humanitarian effort to get the civilians out of the Azov steel plant, which he did successfully. I'm glad he did that. I'm glad that Macron is continuing to be willing to reach out and talk to Putin and see if he'll negotiate. But I, I just don't see a there there in, in the near future. And so what that means is that the war is heading to a very unstable place. It's not going to like, in other words, when people ask me how this ends, my response is, what do you mean end? What, what's ended is the peace dividend for Europe. What's ended is this idea of unfettered globalization and movement towards democracy across the Eurasian landmass. And instead, we are now in a new Cold War with Russia. And it's not dividing Europe in two. On the other side of the Iron Curtain is Russia, Belarus, and a small amount of territory of occupied Ukraine and Moldova. And that's it. So it's in some ways much less problematic than the old Cold War, but it's, it's in some ways much more dangerous 
because the Russians are really isolated. They're really angry. Putin's under a lot of pressure. And he has these cyber capabilities and other asymmetric capabilities that he can use against the West. I'm just spitballing here. I, I, I don't want to be so pessimistic. If Putin's upset because Bono goes on over and hangs out in Ukraine, what if we send Putin Coldplay and all of Imagine Dragons? I, I would be happy to trade Imagine Dragons to Putin. For I mean, I, mean, I, would, I would probably throw in a Justin Bieber. Wow. That's that's it. Now, to be fair, that's a Canadian export. No, so. no, but just, no, 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 no. But the Canadians look, have most of the Ukrainians. Now you're right? talking that's, about going, going nuclear. This is Ian. okay. We need Don't a we need a global a global coalition of artists that we can give to Putin and say. Do what you will. You can, and that you can we don't take, want back. That we don't want back. I think I think that's the right way to go, Jordan. That's why I mean that's that's a brilliant. Every, people people listening to this, I'm sure they've asked the question to themselves and to their friends many times. What about this guy Putin? Who's close to him? Will they get rid of him? What you know, all those kinds of things. Tell us what you know about uh, about Putin and. Who are the closest people to him? And how's he? How is he surrounded? How's he protected? Uh, could he be removed? Uh, I don't want to go any farther than that, but you know, tell me what you what you think about all this. I mean, externally, he has virtually no allies. Uh, I mean, Xi Jinping likes him and shares a worldview, but China's economy is ten times larger, and China relies on trade with the West vastly more than they do Russia. Uh, and Belarus is probably Putin's closest bud. And he's kind of a useless, small kleptocrat with, I mean, a fantastic mustache. I mean, do not under, <laughs> do not undersell that. But still, uh, and otherwise, I mean, who was voting with Russia um, in the United Nations? I think it was Syria, North Korea, Eritrea. I'm not talking about those. I'm talking no, about no. inside You're going the Kremlin. You're going internal. I just thought I'd start externally because okay. it's got nothing externally. And All if right. he had something it's big a lot of knowledge you just shared with us, but I wanted to get to the nub of this, Ian. Okay, Come on. Okay, the nub. The nub. Can the we nub. send – do you know anybody on the inside that we can send Imagine Dragons to who has Putin's ear? And if we send them with a, a, a strong karate teacher, can they get close enough to make some Look, damage? funny thing is one of the reasons Antonio was successful – in Moscow is because back when he was running uh, UNHCR, uh, the Refugee Commission, um, he uh, did a mission in the North Caucasus and um, Sergei Shoigu, who is now Minister of Defense, was Antonio's counterpart from Russia in trying to deconflict the, the, the war that was going on in Georgia. And, and they've maintained a good relationship. And so to have someone who's the former prime minister of Portugal that's really trusted by the West that runs the UN that can go in and do that, I don't think you get those civilians out of Azovstal if you didn't have that relationship. So, I mean, your your inclination to say, okay, where do we have where do we have leverage? I think that's the right question to ask, but there's there's really no one in the major developed governments that is close to Putin's inner circle. They're just not. And, you know, as you know, Putin just lied to the face of all of those Western leaders in the run up to February 24th when he said those 190,000 troops. No, they're not going to invade. It's just training. And I mean, there was just there were no sort of behind the scenes conversations that were going on among cabinet officials and the rest. They've really been cut off. The people that have that kind of access 
inside Russia itself, the, the group that matters is the Security Council. It's that group of men that they did the TV program of um, the day before they in, they launched the invasion, where they had, you know, Putin asked them all, what do you think? What do you think? What do you think? And they all said, yes, we're in favor. Yes, we're in favor. And it was, you know, kind of horrible to watch. But, uh, you know, ultimately, they're nationalists and Putin's their guy. You know, I mean, the fact is that even if you don't support the war, and most Russians at this point still support the war. But even if you don't, Putin is the guy that has been fighting for you against the West that you believe has been trying to undermine and humiliate and destroy you for 30 years. And and so I just don't think I don't think the people that are close to Putin are remotely planning a move against him. And the couple of oligarchs that have spoken out against him are either in exile or they're dead. The former head of Luke Oil, who said uh, back in February that the war was a bad idea just this weekend, um, died from poison. Yeah. Uh, you know, the, the inside Russia, uh, it's it's really not a good risk proposition for you to start saying that maybe Putin's not such a great guy. Yeah. Now, we're talking a lot about very specific risks. I want to expand a little bit. Your group, the Eurasia Group, releases an annual top risks report. One of my favorite, uh, GQ's top trends of 2022 is another one there. Open-toed sandals, they're in, but I love your top risks report. Sexiest man of the year, People Magazine. Jordan, I know that you've been up for that. Thank you. I've, I've been up, uh, yeah, a, uh, I got the attendance award for that. Um, All we uh, can do is show up. That's half of it. <laughs> I've been here 43 years on this planet. I am there. I send in my little card. If you buy a People Magazine, one of those subscription cards, if you write in in the box, I want to be considered for Sexiest Man Alive, they say they will consider it. So I've done that every year since since birth. So thank you for noticing, Ian. I yep. appreciate that. Yep. <laughs> I The risks you have... Uh, to name a few, no zero COVID, techno-polar world, U.S. midterms, China at home, Russia, Iran, two steps greener, one step back, empty lands, corporates losing the culture war, and Turkey. Uh, as you're looking at that list there, I know this came out a handful of months ago, uh, what, what, what can we expect to see in the, the upcoming months? I, I mean, if I'm looking at that list, I feel pretty good. Um, about uh, about what we were thinking back in January. Yeah. I mean, I, I, every year we do this, we leave it on our homepage all year so that people can see it and that we can go back at the end of the year and say, okay, what do we think? And what do we get right? What do we get wrong? And why? How does that affect our thinking? It's always useful to do. Um, the one that's funny, the one that was number one this year, which we haven't spoken about yet. In fact, I was talking to Antonio Barroso uh, right after February 24th, the former uh, European foreign minister, and uh, and he told me, he said, you know, Putin should get the Nobel Prize for medicine for making covid disappear. <laughs> and, uh, you know, there's no question, right, that you and I, we, we, the three of us are having this conversation where, you know, more than half an hour in and covid hadn't even come up. And it's because of the Russia war in Ukraine. But the fact is that uh, China, which was seen as having the most successful response to covid after they admitted to having covid. Um, for the first couple of years, this year has failed miserably. And, and we wrote that back in January and China was not happy. The People's Daily 
you know, ran this article and did a cartoon that portrayed me as the Mr. Moneybags from Monopoly, this American capitalist trying to convince everyone to short China, scaremongering and zero COVID. And, you know, since then, it's been only downside for those guys because their vaccines don't work. They refuse to license our vaccines, which we have offered them. Um, they don't have therapeutics at scale and their hospitals will get completely overwhelmed if they just let the disease rip in these conditions. So what are they doing? They've locked down Shanghai, their largest city now, for a freaking month. And it's causing huge problems domestically, creating immense anger, but also supply chain issues, economic issues for China and for the world, the second largest economy in the world. So this is a massive challenge for everybody as we think about the global economy. And we don't need this at the same time as you have the debt overhang from two years plus of COVID and all of this inflation from the economic stimulus and from the challenges of Russia, Ukraine. I mean, this is this is just a tough year, particularly for poorer countries that can't afford it, can't respond to it. We'll be right back. And now back to the show. Your book is looking at this idea that crisis has the potential to to deal with the problems that we haven't dealt with up until this point and That's looking right. at what a potential global conflict does. Uh, how do you see specifically the U.S.'s response? Have we learned from the global COVID crisis? Are we are, are we moving in a direction where we actually moving uh, making decisions that prep us for the uh, the, the the next COVID down the line a month I mean, and a half look, from now? I, it's, it's, it's funny. Um, uh, two, two different answers to that. Um, on COVID, the answer is largely no. And the reason for that, despite the fact that we're talking about probably 15 million dead already globally in terms of the recent CDC estimates, as, as well as the biggest crisis of our lifetimes, is that it wasn't big enough. It wasn't big enough. It didn't force the Chinese to cooperate um, and be transparent with the U.S. or their own citizens or the WHO. It didn't force the Americans to come together as we did after 9-11, as we did after the 2008 financial crisis. Instead, it drove greater politicization inside the U.S. and between the U.S. and China. Uh, masks, vaccines, all gotten politicized through this. Uh, you know, Trump's approval ratings barely moved on the back of the pandemic, the country only became more divided. But if I look at climate change, here I see a crisis that we are learning from, even though the US government on a federal side is not doing that much, I see companies, I see states, I see cities, I see the Europeans, I see young people, I mean, across the board saying, we've got to actually take action. This is becoming too dangerous. And we, we recognize the problem. We agree on the nature of the problem. 195 countries come together and say climate change. Yes, there's 1.2 degrees centigrade already of warming. And it comes from human beings. It's not just a process of nature in cyclicality. And we need to actually take it seriously or we're going to cook the planet. That's a really big deal. That's crisis forcing us to make changes. And frankly, within the next 20 years, it is now overwhelmingly likely that a majority of the world's energy will no longer come from fossil fuels. Even three years ago, no one credible would have said that. And that's because people are taking it seriously. That's because we're being driven to move from crisis. So that the interesting thing about the power of crisis 
is that the crisis has to be big enough to force you to take it seriously. And we were just too comfortable and complacent in the context of COVID. You know, Ian, we can come we can come back, but you know, India and China are really not taking it seriously, as you know. They're the biggest problem today in the world. But we we leave that. I, I want to talk about China for a second here, and that is, I look at China and U.S. Chinese relations like a pendulum. I remember in the days of uh, when I was in the House, you know. China, we just need to trade. We need all the trade we can get with them. Don't worry about where they're, where they're cheating or whatever. We, this is good. Trade is good. Now we've taken the, tr- the pendulum and we've swung it completely in the other direction that anybody that says anything good about China is, you know, loathsome, that we should really not trade with them. We should not cooperate with them. And so now the pendulum has swung way to the right. To me, that pendulum needs to be swung back to the middle. You know, everything they do shouldn't be okay, and everything that they do shouldn't be bad, but there needs to be a relationship, because without that relationship, including a trade relationship, I mean, could you imagine that Republicans and Democrats are in complete agreement on the value of trade, which they say has no value? Mm. And then we fear China, and we can't make a deal in the Pacific with those countries that were begging us to make a deal with them, who live within the shadow of, of, of China— how are we going to swing this pendulum back to a point where not just with trade, but many other things that we could deal with the climate crisis? Because we can't solve the climate crisis when they're putting out, I don't know how many, 50 more, uh, 50 more plants that are polluting, plants, and maybe yeah. more than more than 50. I don't even know. Same thing with India. But let's stay with China. When do we get that pendulum? And do you agree with me? That pendulum has swung too much in one direction or the other. Oh, absolutely. I agree that it's it was swinging too far in the direction of anything goes and we don't worry and let the corporations invest wherever they want. And I think there were a lot of people making money on that, complete including political types who were cashed yeah. in on yeah. on you know what they knew there. Look, in the same way that Gerhard Schroeder was making oh, huge yeah. money selling out the German national interest yeah. with yeah. Russia. Uh, and should be sanctioned now personally by the United States, in my view, as a consequence of that. That's an interesting question. Um, there were many in the United States and in Europe that were doing the same with China because the Chinese were writing big checks. I don't know if you know this, John. My my firm doesn't take money from Chinese corporations because I mean, even though it would be incredibly lucrative, I don't know of another major consulting firm that says that because I don't feel like we can write objective analysis on a country like China if there are clients because they would pressure us not to. Um, and so I, I think that's enormously- That's what your mother taught you when you were living in the projects. She's taught you that values matter, right? Yeah, sure. Yeah, I mean, good and, for you. And, and, and I, I think that um, you know we absolutely need to focus laser-like on areas that are dual use and matter for national security. And in those areas, we need to ensure that the Chinese cannot rip off our IP, that we're not going to have that exposure. Right. But and the Chinese are doing the same, frankly, they're already doing it. But in areas of basic interdependence and trade, reducing tariffs helps American voters, helps American workers. And I'm all in favor of it. It should be reciprocal. So uh, I, I do think the pendulum needs to swing back. Now, one thing that makes me more optimistic on this one is the fact that special interests in the United States that are so entrenched in preventing us from taking action that we need to take 
uh, that would be long term and healthy for the U.S., like, you know, regulation of surveillance, capitalism and private data and the rest also prevents the United States from breaking the U.S.-China trade relationship because too many companies that have a lot of power and have the ability to fund members of Congress really don't want to see the U.S.-China relationship break economically. So no, I, I, and, and, it, and it can't. And that's part of why China's not sending that material now to, to Russia. They know they, they need our markets. That's okay? right. That's but right. there, but that gives us leverage, and I don't think we should be doing this just by ourselves. There are, you know, the rest of Europe. Much of Europe has the same issues that we have, and yet, you know, Trump decided to go alone. You know, and all this stuff he was doing. If we'd have gone as a group to the WTO and some of these other organizations, we may have. We got to get this back. That pendulum has to come back. And it scares me, it scares me, it concerns me that Republicans and Democrats are on the same page when it comes to trade. It's nuts. I think that we can get China more right as the United States, but I have a hard time seeing us doing it with allies. We need to, but to do it with allies requires that we put something on the table and that that something will be consistent. We can follow through on yeah. it through a number of administrations. And I, I like we know that the TPP, the Trans-Pacific Partnership, was the right thing to do in response to China. And nobody was prepared to support it. Uh, Obama couldn't get it done. Hillary was backing away from it. Trump killed it yep. because no one can talk. about it. Now we've got an Indo-PAC economic framework, but there's no market access. How can you have an economic framework and not provide your allies market access? And the reason is because it's too toxic to support free trade in an environment where economic inequality has grown to the extent that it presently has. In the not United if you States. have some guts, Ian. Not if you have some guts. Tell well, the well, truth. No, but you know, it's but, easy you know, for I, you and me to say this, but I, I, don't, I can't find enough members of Congress that would be willing to take that on. But, you know, somebody's going to break out because somebody's going to say, I'm not going to be part of a team that puts their head in the sand. I am going to be an independent voice, and somebody will emerge, and there'll be a group that will emerge. You mark my words, Ian, it will happen. I, I think that it will happen. I don't know if that happening will be enough to shift that pendulum in the United States, given how, how much momentum there is in the other direction. Look, the most important thing that's happened in the U.S. in the past month has been Roe versus Wade. And that points in exactly the opposite direction. That's that's one issue the Democrats and Republicans haven't had to fight about every election cycle for decades now because the Supreme Court took it off the table. And now it's going to become a tribal identifier that's going to rip apart um, you know, every election cycle on top of everything else we have to deal with. And it makes the Supreme Court much more politicized. It undermines the legitimacy of the institution. I mean, these are horrible things. So, yeah. I mean, I'm, I, I just. That's the I, problem with the leak. It's a the problem. Leak under, that's the problem with the leak. That court was sitting there above it all, and now this leak kind of brings everything down. It's it's a terrible, terrible uh, thing that happened the there. It's horrible, that. but I mean, every confirmation cycle I, is horrible. It I used know, to be that I everybody know. confirmed the justices, and now it's all completely partisan. Yeah. Started with Bork. Yep. I want to. Let, let's. I want to shift gears to the upcoming midterm elections. On your top risks of 2022, underneath, I believe it was open-toed sandals, you had U.S. midterm elections. Uh, what, 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 what are the major risks you see with that? And also from a global perspective, uh, what do you fear? Um, 
So when I think about the Ukraine crisis, for example, um, I see a Europe that considers Russia to be an existential threat to democracy and to Europe, and they're coming together as a consequence. In the midterm elections, I see a United States that doesn't necessarily have staying power on that issue or on many other issues. I see an American political system that is increasingly consumed with itself. I see U.S. political figures that increasingly believe that their principal enemy sits across the aisle from them in their own country, as opposed to as an external threat. Um, And that is uh, the road to ruin for the world's most powerful democracy. I mean, there are many ways that we still lead the world. We've got the reserve currency. We have the strongest financial institutions. um, You know, we have the strongest military. But we used to lead the world with our political system. In 1989, when the wall fell, we, we led the world because those in the Eastern Bloc looked to us as a political system they wanted to emulate. No one credible would say that anymore. And I think that, unfortunately, I also think that many leaders in Washington are either afraid to say that or they don't even know it. They don't listen. They're too inside their own headspace. And it is the case that we just, we no longer lead the world by example in terms of our political system. And this midterm is is going to be, and of course, 2024 to a greater degree is going to be an example of that. I mean, you can't run an effective democracy when the institutions are seen as illegitimate by the losers, irrespective of who loses, by the way. Um, you know, and that's a huge problem. But, you know, Ian, look, you, uh, Jordan and I talked just last week about this article by Jonathan Haidt in- um, Oh, sure. Yeah, you, you've, that, the latest yep. article where yep. he, he talks about technology. He also says something that laid, made me optimistic, which I've always felt. The bulk of the people are in the middle. It's a small percentage of of people on the right and on the left who get an outsized amount of of attention and coverage. You know, the ability to change technology and regulate it in an appropriate way. And I'm we need to have people that really understand it who can make these recommendations to lawmakers. But to take the bots off of to to have you identified, maybe not you personally, but a figure identified when they use social media. What social media is doing is accelerating, accelerating the left and the right and capturing people in the middle who really don't know. So while we talk about the fact that it's all collapsing, I don't think it is all collapsing because I think most people right now they got they're they're being influenced so much by those on the left and the right but that's not where they're ultimately comfortable the ability to regulate technology in a way where people are not completely filled with a bunch of nonsense is something that I think is important for the future of this country and I think you write about it somewhere yeah yeah well my la- my last book us versus them the failure of globalism was all about this and i basically i think that there are three things in the united states that are driving this problem one is economic inequality inequality yeah. of opportunity which is greater in the united states than any g7 economy and it continues to widen and you have to address that you know that you've spoken about it a great deal john yeah. um secondly uh race and identity issues which continue to be greater and more toxic in the united states than in other g7 economies as we move to uh, in, by 2045, a system where you know whites are a minority, um, and it does create more divisiveness on immigration and migration issues and all of that. 
And the, but the third is technology. And I agree that technology is the one that is hardest to respond to because in the 80s and 90s, the role of technology was actually in bolstering democracies and undermining authoritarian regimes because it was a communications revolution that gave individuals access to more information. It didn't divide people. It brought them together. That's how we got the Arab Spring. In some ways, it's how it, it, it's how the wall fell. And, and yet today, the role of technology is the surveillance revolution. It's the data revolution. It's top down. And these are business models, as well as government models in the case of China, that divide people that tribalizes people, that undermines civil society. And so the, the, cha- the, the progress of technology itself has shifted from one that bolsters democracies and undermines authoritarian regimes to ones that strengthens technologically empowered authoritarian regimes and undermines democracies like the United States, which makes it all harder. And yes, it means that we have to regulate it effectively but it just the challenge because these technologies move so quickly, you know, it's 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 a very, very daunting one to deal with. If you ask me of the three things that are that are eroding U.S. political institutions structurally, I consider race and identity and economic inequality the two easier ones to wrestle with because you can use traditional political mechanisms to respond to them. I think the social media and data issue is actually the hardest one. <laughs> but but you know, the I easy think one you, is dealing with dealing with America's race yeah. and identity issues. Easy compared to technology, but don't worry, Elon. Well, Musk no, Jordan, is on that I one. say that in part but, because I actually think that demographics will make it easier because mm-hmm. it, it will move in a direction that either the GOP will have to adapt or they'll start to fail. Mm-hmm. Like I just think that yeah. the power of numbers matters. Just politically at that point, they'll have to adapt. Yeah. But technologically, do, do you, I say it sarcastically, but what, what is your take on Elon Musk taking over Twitter? Does that uh, bring you any amount of uh, hope that a big change to the system can bring about some, some something positive? Oh, it's interesting that he wants it to make money and he wants and he's going to need to, um, given you know the exposure, the economic exposure he and his co-investors are going to have. Um, if that means removing advertising from the model, um, then you know that that will help to change the business model in ways that will drive less tribalism. On the other hand, if it turns out the only way he can make money is to drive more advertising more effectively and tweak those algorithms to make that happen, I suspect that will be his interest. Um, I I am enormously impressed with Elon as an entrepreneur. I am deeply mistrustful of Elon as a uh, member of civil society. He has not, sh- through, through, through his messaging on social media, he has not shown me much interest in either understanding or acting as a responsible American citizen. Ian, thank you. We had a mil- we'll have you back because there's a million of other course. places no, I, around I love the world. You guys. Israel, I'd, I'd Saudi very, Arabia, very happy to do it. India, North Korea. We, we, you, got a, you got a way easy. Yeah. Gonna, <laughs> as, as, as soon as you endorsed the Trump policy, we're kicking you off. That's I'm sorry, right but here. I appreciate you guys helping me sell some books. Yes. Power of Crisis, just out. Look, Ian Bremer's new book, The Power of Crisis, How Three Threats and Our Response Will Change the World, is available now wherever you get your books. And go to g0media.com for global news and more. Ian Bremer, thanks for coming out. Love you guys. See you soon. Hey, everybody. Jordan here, uh, your favorite 
host of the Kasich Klepper podcast. Thank you for listening this far. If you like what you hear, click like or thumbs up or whatever icon signifies a positive reaction. We love your ratings. We love your thoughts. Reach out to us on social media. Let us know what you want us to talk about because I'm tired of answering the governor's questions and I just prefer to answer yours. Thanks for listening. Talk to you soon. Kasich and Klepper is a production of Treefort Media, hosted and executive produced by John Kasich and Jordan Klepper. Treefort Media's executive producers are Kelly Garner, Lisa Ammerman, and Matthew Kugler. Line producers, Oscar Guido. Audio direction by Tom Monahan, head of audio for Treefort. With production and editing by Maxwell Carney. Talent booking by Blythe Asher. With additional production help from Tim Schauer, Haley Mandelberg, Colin Motel, and Anastasia Ibrahim. This podcast is powered by Acast.